0: Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. As we look at a song, a poem, that the church has been singing together for centuries after uh, Mary, Pen, uh, after Mary uh, began uttering these words in excitement. Uh, as you're turning there, this is, uh, this is right on the heels of a few birth announcements of the angel Gabriel to Elizabeth and to Mary, uh, the two just got divine visitations about great things that are happening, and last week we saw them meeting one another, and it says in the text that the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and, her, uh, and John the Baptist, her, her boy in the womb, just started doing cartwheels, basically, exuberant as they met Mary, who would give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so those two got together, and in that instance, filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth pronounces a blessing on Mary, a blessing on Mary. And the response to that blessing is Mary bursting out in song. And actually, because this was meant to be sung and to be spoken, what if we just stood up together and just uh, sang? No, just kidding. We're not going to sing. What if we just read this corporately together? Is that cool? Let's all stand up together. Rhetorical question, right? Uh, I'm reading out of the ESV. If you have a different translation, that's fine. Uh, It will be on the screen, I think. Uh, Let's read along and let's just feel the excitement Mary must have felt 2,000 years ago. It says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Luke goes on to say, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that whatever it was that took hold of Mary's soul in this instance, whatever she saw in what you were doing and what you were all about, your activity, your promises, your faithfulness, your truth, your steadfast love and mercy, I pray that we too here in this little town of Santa Barbara would also be captivated by the things that captivated her heart. And may you do this as we open up your word and we examine some of the things that she points out about you. May those things, too, uh, uh, open our eyes to see the faithfulness and the beauty of our God. And may they change us. May we do more than just be excited and exuberant. May we be changed from the ground up. And to leave this theater as the salt of the earth, as Jesus, you described us, as a, 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 the preservative, as a group of people blessing the nations and the neighbors uh, around us. We pray for transformation, not only spiritually, uh, but all around us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, I love music. I've uh, loved music uh, since as long as I can remember, but I, I've always approached music uh, as kind of a background noise that's kind of just gotten me in this, this place of relaxation. I've never, I've never always listened to the lyrics. For me as a musician, I tend to listen to uh, the, the musicians and uh, the, the combination of those musical elements together and what they form. I've never, I've never uh, or I should say, I haven't always listened to what the musicians were singing about or the stories that they were trying to tell until the first time I heard a story being sung in a song that was provocative for me. Uh, I think I was a teenager at the time, I was getting pizza, and I heard a song by Eddie Cochran uh, who sang a really silly song, but he was telling a story. He was telling a story about how he liked a girl, uh, as a lot of those songs were in those days, uh, but how she lived, at the top of a 20, uh, I think a 21-story building, and the elevator broke. And his whole song, Eddie Cochran, was about his uh, endeavor to find this girl, but he had to run up the stairs. And so he, he sings for six minutes about his struggles getting up the stairs and getting to the stairs and being tired and uh, verse by chorus after verse and chorus, he's telling the story that builds on each other and for the first time in my life, I was kinda cracking up. I wasn't listening to the music, I wasn't listening to the instrumentation, I wasn't even listening to his voice. I was like, this is a funny and hilarious story, tell me more. And as the song went on, I just started cracking up. I'm like, first of all, if those are the worst of your problems, is going up 20, uh, 20 staircase, uh, a flight of 21 stairs, and you've got it made. But uh, this is a really funny song. And after that, I began to listen to songs in that light. I'm like, what, what is this song trying to say? What's this theme behind this? I love the music and I love the feeling behind it, but what is the author, what is the musician, the lyricist trying to get across in this music? And some of them were good at it and others are not as good at it. Uh, But Mary explodes into what looks like spontaneous song. And she's telling a story. She's telling a story that stands on its own because we have no instrumentation behind it. We have only the words and in a matter of verses, Mary tells the gospel before the gospel, if that makes any sense. Before Jesus is ever born, she gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. And this song is meant to show a little bit about God's character to us. Not just in abstractions, as things that float up here that belong in academic ivory, uh, uh, ivory booktops and uh, uh, sh- bookshelves, but that belong down here in terms of everyday actions. She's speaking and singing poetically about a God who acts in our backyards, in our business, in our personal affairs, in our social affairs. And for her, it is the source of praise and exuberance and excitement. It is the fact that God gets involved in our lives. That Mary, Starts to sing. And it comes out in the form of a beautiful poem of praise. And it seems spontaneously interwoven, thrown together, seemingly freestyle, as Mary borrows from the Torah, uh, from Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, from many Psalms of David. This poor young peasant girl just starts grabbing all of these verses that she's heard, but doing it in such a way, almost magically expressing in a short amount of time who her God is and why she is thrilled to be a part of his people. It starts with an expression of praise. I love this first line, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That word soul uh, in, the, in the Old and New Testament refers to the deepest and most inner part of the human person's uh, being. It is the deepest part of you, the heart, the deepest part of who you are. That's out of which all the truest things about you flow, as the proverbs say. Guard your heart with all diligence, or your spirit—another way for uh, another uh, word for spirit—for out of it flow the innermost. Uh, out of that flow the uh, the things that animate you. If I can paraphrase the, the the proverbs, and she's saying, "Out of my innermost being is overflowing." The magnifying of God. Praise is flowing out of the deepest part of me for the Lord. And I love these two words that she uses uh, to, to identify her God. She speaks about the Lord. She also speaks about the Savior. When she speaks about the Lord, she's speaking from a humble state of mind. That the Lord is king and he is God. He's the main attraction and we are but mere creations. And so when we praise God, we're coming from this sense of humility that God is far above us and we are his creations. And yet, this God who created is also relational. And so Mary refers to God as our savior. He, he is approachable. Even though he's otherworldly, even though he's majestic, even though he's glorious, sits high upon a throne, he leaves his throne and comes after the few. I want you to imagine a helpless child looking up at a parent towering over them with anticipation and just uttering, "Pick me up." And there might be just I can remember I can still remember some of my kids when they were babies, and they were just starting to mouth a couple words almost a combination of two emotions: helpless desperation and joyful anticipation, both of them. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't even stand up, but I want my mom. I want my dad. This is how Jesus taught us to pray to God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. If you can imagine a helpless child looking up with joyful anticipation at a towering, loving parent, you see the posture in Mary's expression of praise towards God. If you want to know what praise is like, think back upon the last thing that thrilled your heart. The last thing that got you, uh, that kept you awake at night thinking about. The last pleasant thing that kept you awake at night. (laughs) I remember years ago, uh, I was in Chicago on a trip, and I was with a, a bunch of friends, and, uh, one of them, Pastor G, was in, the, was in that group, and we got uh, cheap nosebleed tickets to the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. And we were up in the nosebleeds. But as we were walking, it was just in, that, in the middle of the season where there just weren't a lot of people there. It was really laid back. I don't know if this was the right or wrong thing to do, but in a moment that I think was the movement of the Holy Spirit, G looks over to the right, sees a, a bunch of empty seats right behind home plate and he grabs my hand, and he runs. And he says, Lazo, shut up, don't say anything, run this way. And we make a beeline for these empty seats, and we sit behind the seats, and we're right behind home plate. And I'm looking around at Wrigley Field at all of these crazy people drowning in blue. And you gotta understand, I am not a Cubs fan, I'm not even a baseball fan, but something happened to me at Wrigley Field. I don't know what it was, but I ended up buying a bunch of merch that I haven't (laughs) worn since that day, and everything that happened, I don't even know what was happening. I just started screaming, and it was this slow progression, like someone would be announced, "Eh, and such and such is, I don't even know who they were, such and such is going to home plate, ah, just people would start shouting, and I would just get caught up in the fervor. what is everybody screaming about, I just hear loud noises, I don't know, ah, and just people just got caught up in the thrill of the moment and i was sitting there with no baseball iq looking around in a sea of blue feeling years and decades worth of conflicted emotion and history and battles and conflict and i loved it mary her heart is being thrilled But unlike me at Wrigley Field, Mary knows why. It's not an accident. She has gotten a deep, personal revelation of who God is and what God does. This is why we start our gatherings the way that we do, by the way, with song. And they're usually, specifically, songs of praise. We love to start every Sunday, every Lord's Day, with songs of praise. Why? Well, contrary to popular opinion, it's not to, as filler to get to the good stuff when I preach. I just said that. It's not, to, it's not to fill up time. It's an important, appropriate, worthwhile, formative part of the gathering of God's people. Where we start with praise. Praise is important because it's appropriate, first of all. It is the appropriate relationship of people and the God who created his people. It is the rightful and worthy response of the creature to the creator without any reference to ourselves. Doesn't matter what we feel like or what we're, we're doing in the moment. It simply matters that God is worthy of praise. He deserves praise. And as the people of God, we want to be the first people to offer him that praise. And so week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we like to hit pause on whatever came before in that week. We like to hit pause and gather together on his terms and not our own to say, regardless of what I went through Saturday, Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, I'm gonna stop it all. I'm gonna lift my eyes up upon the king on his throne. and I'm gonna give him what what he deserves in this moment, no matter what. Praise is appropriate. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. So we love doing that. We love recalibrating and redirecting ourselves with ruthless regularity week after week by saying, regardless of what we're going to preach about, regardless of where we came from, regardless of what's happening, all of that stops for a moment as we lift our eyes to the hill where our help comes from. Praise is appropriate, and it's all about God. However, it does have some personal benefits for you and me. Praise is formative. And I don't just mean if you do it once, it's magical and it will change you. I mean the ruthless regularity of constantly shaping yourself, patterning your life, scheduling praise into your life, will shape your soul to magnify. It creates habits within you. It's formative. I love this uh, line by Richard Foster, the Quaker who wrote a, a bestseller on the spiritual disciplines. Richard Foster writes, singing is meant to move us into praise. If you're not feeling like praising, just start singing, if, even if you don't feel like it. Just start singing about the attributes and character of God. And perhaps, like me in Wrigley Field, getting caught up in the moment, in a moment that I had no idea what what it was about, perhaps your heart will catch up with your lips. He goes on to say, it provides a medium. That was me, not him. It provides a medium of the expression of emotion. Through music, we express our joy, our thanksgiving. No less than 41 psalms command us to sing to the Lord. If singing can occur in a concentrated manner, it serves to focus us. We become centered. Our fragmented minds and spirits flow into a unified whole. We become poised towards God. Of course, the rest of the Psalms are, many of them, Psalms of lament. And so you see, even in the Psalms, the full spectrum of human emotion. But make no mistake, there is also a time for praise. We're in the midst of lament. In the midst of affluence, we say, God, you are worthy. And While my circumstances are constantly changing, you never change. Therefore, my praise of you will never change. Psalm 42 verse 5 says, why are you cast down O my soul? I love that line so much because David is preaching to himself. He's speaking to his soul. You ever preach to your own soul? You should try that sometime. He's literally saying, why are you so depressed, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then look at this. Look at how he, he, he forms his heart in the right direction. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We praise because it is right and formative. And so I hope that you see the importance of making it, not just for the sermon, or the announcements or the tail end of worship, but for the beginning. Coming to prepare your heart to bring an offering of sacrifice of praise to God, as the author of Hebrews says. And knowing that in doing so, it's actually shaping your heart, giving you a wider capacity for your God. Now, you might be hearing this, uh, these words on praise, and thinking to yourself, I have nothing to praise for. I want to praise God, but in the things that I'm going through, the discouragement that I face, the trials and the opposition that I've encountered, it's kind of hard, and I feel like I'm manufacturing it, to be honest. Perhaps some of you need kindling for the fire of praise that's laying dormant inside you. Because it is hard to manufacture praise if you're not feeling like praising. God doesn't call us to be dishonest or fake. Have you ever tried to engage a group that uh, only told inside jokes? Have you ever tried to fit into a group that only spoke about stuff that only they understood? Inside jokes and uh, events and situations that only happened within that inner circle? You remember how hard it was to feel like you belonged? To engage into that group? You need to be let in. You need to break through the doors of that homogenous wall and be let in so that you can engage. What Mary does in this song is she lets us in. She opens the doors and she doesn't just speak about the praise of God in these ethereal abstract terms. She gives us reasons to praise. I wanna talk about reasons for praise. In the words of Mary, as we saw in the weeks prior, God is a God of reversals. God seems to get a thrill out of reversing our ideas of who is important and what is important. And that is thrilling to people who are on the bottom of the food chain. Mary is at the bottom of the food chain. She has a reason to praise because God has said, even though the world has passed you by, You have been elevated to the top of my system. Even though you are unseen by the world, I see you and I see only you. I have left the 99 to pursue the one. And in Mary's song, we see the God of reversals not just being spoken about in nice platitudes and anecdotes, but in personal ways. God is personal, first of all. He cares about you. Look at Mary's song in verse 48, verse 49. God is is doing this directly to Mary's life. This no-name, peasant, poor, impoverished girl from a town nobody cares about, Nazareth. She says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. you got to imagine how a girl like Mary, she was a girl, she was young, you got to imagine how a young woman like Mary would have felt when she said words like this. In a shame-based culture, Or if you lost face, you lost honor, it's perhaps the worst thing that could ever happen to you, and for Mary, who already had very little going for her, to throw what little she had going for her away by getting pregnant outside of the marriage to her husband Joseph. And yet she sees in the promise and the plan of God there will be a day where all generations will call me blessed. I might suffer disgrace in the meantime. But God will honor me in the presence of all people. Thousands of years later, one of the most famous women in the Bible, and generations later, thousands of people are singing her song. God exchanges beauty for ashes and honor for disgrace. We see this personal aspect of God. Uh, throughout the gospel of Luke in a couple of places. Luke chapter 15, I referred to it. God cares about the individual. He leaves the 99 for the one. He cares about each and every person, and he cares about you. You might be in this building, you might just be visiting, and you might walk out the doors without talking to a single person, feeling like you are invisible to everybody around you, maybe even to God, but he sees you. He sees you with an uncomfortable gaze. Luke chapter 18, verse 14, we see uh, two guys in the temple. One of them was a very privileged, rich, religious man. And he offers a prayer. He says, thank you, God, that I do all of the right things. I give. I'm good to people. I help the poor. I'm not like this guy over here. This guy shambles. Thank you that you made me, me, and not this guy. And the guy next to him, which is a tax collector, pretty much on the bottom rung of society in that day, couldn't even look up. He just beat his breast and said, have mercy on, on me, God, a sinner. In the Bible, Jesus specifically goes on to say God justified that man because he had a broken heart. Because he was humble. And he, uh, he depended upon the grace of God. We see individuals being transformed. But then Mary takes a turn. God doesn't just care about individuals. God is social too. I don't mean God is social like he's a socialite, although maybe probably. I could see how he would be. I don't mean that he's merely relational. I mean he's social in the sense of social being the organizing of society in all of its institutions and structures. That he cares not just about individuals, but he cares about groups of people. Because no individual cares about personal spiritual freedom if they're still systematically imprisoned. God cares about both, and Mary sings about it. We see some personal aspects of individual faith in Mary's song, we see some personal acts of faith. Uh, an individual salvation throughout the gospel of Luke, but we see a lot of social change in Mary's song. We see a lot of social change in Luke's gospel. Look at Larry, uh, uh, Larry, (laughs) look at Mary's song. In verse 51, she talks about personal character, again, she's transitioning, showing the strength of God's arm and scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, speaking about Personal character being changed. But then look at this. Look at verse 51. Then he brings down the mighty from their thrones and he exalts those of humble estate, speaking about people in places of power. Look at verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now he's speaking economically. This is not merely spiritual and personal, he's speaking about social aspects of life. Rescuing the oppressed and the hungry. Bringing down those who abuse power so that those who the world does not think are important can be elevated in the economy of God, the kingdom of God. God cares about individuals. He also cares about social things. We see a lot of that throughout the gospel. Starting with Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 19, Jesus gives his mission. What is his mission? To the poor, to the captives, to the blind, to the oppressed. In Luke chapter 6, verse 17, we see racial barriers coming down. And I would argue racial reconciliation. Not just barriers coming down, but reconciliation. Where Tyre and Sidon, it's just little hints being unraveled through the gospel of Luke. He's not just including the Jewish believers, but also people from Tyre and Sidon. It gets a little more emphasized when you get to Luke chapter 7, verse 9. These racial barriers and reconciliation. When the centurion of all people... Part of the Roman authority, certainly not a Jewish person, isn't just looked on with love and esteem, but Jesus actually validates his faith as being better than any act of faith he's seen in all of Israel. This would have been very scandalous and controversial. Jesus reaching across the aisle. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37, we see more racial barriers. This is the the climactic point of this with the Good Samaritan, where Jesus validates an outsider and says this is a picture-perfect illustration of the kingdom of God at work. This homogenous group of religious professionals within the uh, family of God here has been getting it wrong. It's the Samaritan. We see economic barriers being torn down in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus says, when you throw a party, don't invite all the people that will be able to throw you a party later. Invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. He turns more economic barriers on their heads when he speaks about the poor man and Lazarus and validates the poor man, excuse me, the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke chapter 17 verse 18... We see Jesus' view and treatment of foreigners in his story of the 10 lepers. He speaks about the foreigner as the only person that returned to thank him. Again, validating. I don't have enough paper to talk about his reversal of structural powers between genders the fact that we are now reading one of the longest speeches by a woman in all of the Gospels should tell you what's important to Luke and to Jesus. The fact that it was women who funded and supported Jesus' ministry. The fact that Jesus, being one of the first rabbis to include women disciples. The fact that it was women who first proclaimed the Gospel of Jesus' uh, uh, resurrection should tell you a little bit about how much God loves to reverse things that we think are important. God loves individuals. Thank God for that. God also loves the groups and cares about the structures and the institutions that those individuals belong to. And I thank God for that too. As I'm speaking about social change, or as we call it today, social justice, some of you might feel very uncomfortable, might be squirming in your seat. And I get it. Having been raised as an evangelical in America, that was never something that was spoken about in the churches that I grew up in. There has often been a deep disconnect between personal faith and social change and justice. Our tendency as evangelicals, and I'm speaking about a very niche group of evangelicals, is to see only individual acts of salvation and not social transformation. It's just something we don't even see when we read the Bible. This is due more to an entrenchment into our cultural surroundings than it is By an honest reading of the Bible, as you can see, I hope. When I speak about cultural surroundings, I'm speaking specifically about Western values, specifically individualism. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, in their book, Divided by Faith, write that the roots of this individualist tradition run very deep, dating back to shortly after the 16th century reformation extending to much of the free church tradition, flowering on America's frontier awakening and revivals, and maturing into spiritual pietism and the anti-social gospel fundamentalism. It is decades, centuries in the making. We are very personal and privatized. Individualism is like a lens, and I want to differentiate between individualism and individuation, which is a good thing. When I speak of individuation... It's the fact that God loves individual people. It's that he will, in fact, leave the 99 for the one. That he made people in his own image and he cares about each and every person. And that there is dignity in human life from the womb to the tomb. That's a freebie right there. Individualism, however... Is the dark side of our culture. And that is far beyond human, individual human dignity. That is self preservation, idolatry, and worship of ourselves. Individual, uh, individualism is when we put ourselves down as the bottom line for everything, including our worship of God and our treatment of others. Individualism is like a lens that forces people to think of problems merely as matters of personal responsibility. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Just do the right thing. Just get a job. Just stop being poor. Without considering that there might be larger forces at work, such as institutional or systematic injustice. As a side note, uh, months uh, earlier this year when we went through the series Messy Church, which was a series on emotional and spiritual health. We spoke about a lot, of uh, a lot of different topics. We spoke about Christian self-awareness. We spoke about family of origin and how our families, how our uh, history, personal history, shapes us. We spoke about uh, a journey through the wall, that dark night of the soul. We spoke about enlarging our heart through uh, grief and loss, so not just celebration and happiness and praise, but mourning and lamenting. We spoke about the daily office, stopping throughout the day to pray. We spoke about the Sabbath, so on and so forth. Incredible season for us uh, us as a church. We did two classes involving emotional health and spirituality. Nine-week classes. Took 100 people through our church through that series. You know what was the hardest topic for people on a large scale? Family of origin. That was the one that people had the most difficulty with. And, and they told me why. My friends told me why. It was very difficult to attribute to what I'm going through now to something outside of myself, namely my family history or my personal history. Very difficult because we're individuals and we're a part of an individualistic culture and it's very hard to see how something back then or around me, might have an effect on me. And this is very powerful. And it causes us from saying things that are very close to the heart of God. Dr. Chang Ra uh, wrote a book called The Next Evangelicalism, where he speaks about global Christianity. And he actually speaks from a place of celebration and praise, how... The church is actually exploding in revival all over the world. But it's exploding in revival, growing at unprecedented paces in Latin America, in Asia, and in Africa. As the church is blowing up on a global scale, it is shrinking in Europe and in America, except for churches that are Latin American, African American. Asian American. And one of the points that he brings up in his research is that one of the things that has held the American church back is their worship of individualism. It's our inability to see beyond ourselves. He writes, evangelicalism's obsessive fascination with maintaining the primacy of the individual deepens the disconnect with social sin. We end up not being able to see the things that God cares about that will bring revival. In other words, issues of social justice historically have been so foreign to so many evangelicals, especially those who have had the privilege to be indifferent to such things because they have never experienced systematic poverty, never experienced or had to think about the dark side of the justice system, have never had to undergo difficulties in the educational system, inequality or marginalization, who have never had to think about their, their baby kids being gunned down in the street simply because of the color of their skin. Many of us, many of us in this room just don't even have to think about it. We may resort to name calling or accusations instead of listening to those who are legitimately hurtful, uh, excuse me, hurting and fearful. Not because we have malice in our hearts, I don't think, but because we don't even have the categories in our religious tool belt to deal with the destructive and demonic forces around us. But God does have those categories. And Mary sings about them. My God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Contrasted with a merely spiritualized personal faith, the Magnificat, as it's often called, this song by Mary, shares the story of God who is concerned with both individual people and social issues he cares about the one it turns out he cares about the 99 too perhaps it would be in our best interests to ask god i have seen your word give me the categories that i did not have before what would it look like for a church like this to habitually and naturally Always look outside of ourselves to the things around us and to the people around us, to consider us others more important than ourselves, to listen faster and longer than we speak. If this is you, I want to kindly challenge you, since this is a series about following Jesus, to follow him in this. Might not have all the answers. You might be disagreeing vehemently with me right now. But I want you to direct you to the words of Jesus. And to follow what he says about such things because this is what he seems to care about. And it's only going to get deeper in the Gospel of Luke. And this is what he came to do. How does he do this? He ends or Mary ends with an assurance for her praise by going back to God's covenant promise to Abraham, his faithful promises. When he says he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever, he spoke to us, he gave us a promise, a promise that would be fulfilled in the giving of God's son through Mary who would die on the cross and rise from the dead. In that death, he does what no other worldly ruler ever thought to do, Every other worldly ruler in all of history tends to go to battles and to violence and to power and to control. Jesus gives up his control. The Roman Empire squashed everybody that came up against them. Jesus was squashed by the Roman Empire. Worldly rulers like to kill and to maim. Jesus was killed and maimed. And he gives up his life as an offering for the very people that he came to save. He dies on the cross and gives himself up in a cosmic display of the radical love of God for unjust, sinful, broken, tired people. Instead of controlling and smashing and pointing the finger, he gives his life for them. But he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the dead. In so doing, not just saying, I'm going to Give you the power to be free from these, but also I want you to walk in the gospel that I have given. I'm not just going to give you the good news of how I've come to free you from the shackles of social injustice and personal injustice. I am giving you the way and the power to walk in those things. Cross and resurrection, but that's for later. Right now, we're just getting a glimpse into a great story that Mary is singing about. And Mary is excited because she's at the bottom of the food chain. If you're at the bottom of the food chain in your life, you might have reason to be excited too. If you're at the top of the food chain in Santa Barbara, you might be offended. And God is inviting both of you on the full spectrum of the chain to see your lack For the poor, the tired, the ostracized, the marginalized, the historically disenfranchised, it's pretty obvious. You've been left by the world. For the rich and the famous and the powerful and the lovely, you might have to dig a little deeper. You'll find that brokenness in your own heart. and God's calling you to look there. Beyond all the stuff that you have, beyond the privilege that you're surrounded by, to see what your heart is truly made of. When you see that brokenness, Jesus says to you, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God is theirs. The gift of the gospel is for all of you. It's for all of us. Not only are Mary and Elizabeth exuberant, but we see that baby, pre-birth, jumping for joy by the Holy Spirit. Because this is really a celebration about God. Not Mary, not Elizabeth, not you, and not me. God is excited. And God is taking initiative. God is bringing justice and mercy to roll down like a stream. He cares about groups and he cares about individuals in them and he makes a way for God's people to walk in. The Magnificat is the gospel before the gospel. It's a teaser, a trailer of the good news to come. I'm going to ask Alex and the team to come out as we sing and I want to end with this. Let's join in with Mary singing praises to God simultaneously crying out to him because of his past faithfulness to all generations. But as we sing, perhaps we can pray that our hearts would be enlarged to the full capacity of the power of the gospel. That doesn't just save the things that we have categories for. It goes far beyond our imagination. That we would be enlarged to receive the greatness of that good news, and that our eyes would be open to a good news that's actually worth believing in. Not only to you and to me, but to everybody. Heavenly Father, I come before you in the name of Jesus. And we ask that as we sing together, as we lift up praises to your name, as we pray, as we take communion, As we kneel, as we sit, as we lift our hands, I want to pray that you would step into our midst by the power of the Holy Spirit. You would give us your categories. Show us things that you care about and that your heart beats for. And if there's any areas where we have closed our ears to others, you challenge and confront that and in that loving and kind way that you do draw us to repentance. That this church today might go forward with a view of the gospel that actually shapes and forms not just not just our inner being but social structures hurt and pain brokenness injustices pray even now by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit tune our eyes to that place where you sit to see you in a bigger way than we've ever seen you before. As a savior of hearts, yes, and also as the savior of the world. May God be praised forever and ever.